0: Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy
1: podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. What's going on, Kate? Well, Kristen, (laughs) it's (laughs) been a dreary week in Brooklyn and I'm really feeling the winter blues over here. Um, But, you know, I don't know about you, but with Mercury stationing direct last night and all planets headed towards forward motion, I think I'm feeling a little bit of new energy which is mm-hmm. exciting. But um, yeah. you know, what's new with you? How's uh Juniper liking her new goat home? <laughs> Listeners, <laughs> you have to see this. Oh my gosh. Um, Eric and Kristen made the most adorable little witch house for the goats and it's it's stunning.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Juniper, Canela, Cajada, the whole goat crew is obsessed <laughs> with that house. And you know, Kate, but we tried to make the door really small so our big bully goat couldn't get in and boss everyone around but she's obviously a shapeshifter because half the time I look she's inside with just like her head sticking out the hole so uh yeah we're all good over here you know just trying to get through February which is the harshest windiest wettest month but you know after that it's spring so very much looking forward to gardening and getting my hands dirty again.
1: Um. Yes. Also, is is the first part of that a children's book? I'm just curious. <laughs> it it should be. Yeah. If it's not. <laughs> um, Kristen, can you let the listeners know what we're going to be speaking about today? Yeah, we're going to be
0: talking about ancestors and the ancient Roman festival Parentalia today. Yes. I've talked about the storyteller and mythologist, Dr. Martin Shaw, on here before, but I was listening to his podcast, Smoke Hole, the other day, and he said something that really resonated and I wanted to share. He said, Books are ancestors, and that reading and telling stories is like tending to the dead. And I really loved that interpretation because I think so often when we talk about working with ancestors, we immediately think of our blood relatives, you know, great great grandparents and so on. Mm-hmm. But I think anything that is still communicating with us
1: from beyond the grave, we can consider an ancestor. Totally. And I've actually I finally ordered his book on the wild twin, by the way. you uh, inspired Amazing. me. But um Yeah, I absolutely love that. And it's so true. Books like as themselves as as an artifact, but then also language, stories, and authors as a bridge between the dead and the living. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And in anticipation for this episode, I spent a little time looking up some official definitions of ancestor beyond the ones speaking to biology. And I found one that said, one who had the same role or function in former times and another that said to go before. So I like these because they kind of back up my claim that nearly anything can be an ancestor so long as it came before us. I know we're going to talk about ancestors today in the traditional sense in just a little bit, but Kate, do you work with any non-traditional ancestors?
1: Yeah, I actually do. Um, I'm going to speak a little bit about plants as a form of ancestry and then speak a little bit about shadow side of ancestry later, as well as some practical magic um, for connecting to the dead and gone. But do you want to touch on the history of parentalia first? Yeah, let's do
0: it. Roman world, February was dedicated to Lupercalia, a lust-driven event that we talked about in season one, and Parentalia. Parentalia was an annual festival honoring ancestors and the dead. Beginning on February 13th and running through the 21st, Parentalia wasn't a little thing. On the final day, called Feralia, there was drinking and feasting like nearly all Roman festivals, but people took this celebration more seriously than others. You weren't allowed to get married, visit the temples, or conduct business during Parentalia. It was all about performing our duties to the dead. Romans would place offerings like wine, bread, flower garlands at their family tombs outside the city boundaries, and from what I understand, this was a requirement. The head of the family was responsible for maintaining a good relationship with the dead, and by leaving these offerings at the family tombs, they were feeding the manes, or the shades of the dead. The manes were earth deities believed to live beneath our feet, within the soil. And I love envisioning this because if they live beneath our feet in the soil, that means they are our foundation, which makes sense when we consider that the manes were also believed to represent the souls of the dead. In the ancient world, February was all about purification. In the words of the Roman poet Ovid, "...the cheerful and orderly festival of the Parentalia, the yearly renewal of the seemly rite of burial, where the dead were still members of the family and there was nothing to fear from them, so long as the living performed their duties towards them under the due regulations. When the liturgical nine days were over, the living members met together in the Charistia, a kind of love feast of the family." at which all quarrels were to be forgotten, and from which all guilty members were excluded. I think it's interesting because in pretty much any ancient civilization, ancestor worship was an important part of life. And we see that sentiment in certain modern traditions as well, you know, Day of the Dead in Mexico, Mm -hmm. which is holding a dumb supper or silent supper at Samhain. But It's not a lawful requirement or anything like Parentalia, also known as Ancestor Days, in ancient Rome. Ovid speaks about how Romans observed Parentalia to keep their ancestors happy, but also to keep them away for the rest of the year, away from their homes and the living in general. He also talks about what happens when you forget to honor the dead at Parentalia— because no excuse is good enough to ignore these ancient duties. According to Ovid, one year, Parentalia came around, and they were in the midst of a war. Everyone was so focused on the war that they didn't visit their familial tombs, didn't offer them flowers, and didn't feed the manes. In response, Ovid said, Our ancestors left their tombs in nights silent and wailed. The city streets and broad grassland howl, they say, with a hollow throng of shapeless souls. Chills. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Ovid's description sounds extreme, but not when we consider that many believe in death. We are not gone. We're living on a new frequency or in another reality, but can still interact with people of the living. While I was researching this episode, I came across the Museum of Badalona in Barcelona, which has preserved several remains related to the necropolises of the Roman cities where burial tombs have been excavated, in which the dead were deposited in boxes made of tiles or wood. They have also, quote, found witnesses of incineration, where the remains of the dead were placed in ballot boxes Mm. "'Accompanying the dead were ointments to anoint the deceased, lacrimatoria with the tears of loved ones, "'lamps to illuminate the dead on their journey, "'coins to pay the boatman charon, "'and plates and glasses to drink and eat. "'Above the tombs, the Romans placed tombstones, "'usually made of marble, with the name of the deceased, "'usually dedicated to the gods' manes.'" A request in Latin is also engraved into the tombstones, which translates to let the earth be light to you. This is a wish that on days like these, we want to extend to all those who have preceded us and who we now have in mind, end quote.
1: I really love that. Let the earth be light to you. There's something Mm -hmm. really beautiful about old tombstones, right? Like, Someday when you come visit New York, I'll have to take you to Greenwood Cemetery because it's absolutely stunning. I would
0: love to go. There's just something so peaceful about cemeteries and places where the dead gather.
1: You know, I think that burial practices as a way of honoring ancestry is a really beautiful take, Kristen. Um, You know, one of my favorite discussions around burials has to be the Tibetan sky burial which I first learned from Dana Levin in her beautiful book of poems called Sky Burial. But a sky burial is simply the disposal of a corpse to be devoured by vultures. And in Tibetan Buddhism, sky burial is believed to represent the wishes to go to heaven. And so it is the most widespread way for commoners to deal with the dead in Tibet. So if a Tibetan dies, the corpse is wrapped in white cloth, placed in the corner of the house for three to five days, during which monks are asked to read the scripture aloud so that souls may be released from purgatory. Then, family members stop other activities, create a peaceful and beautiful environment to allow ascension for souls into heaven. Later, family members will choose a lucky day and ask the body carrier to carry the body to the celestial burial platform. And on the day before burial, the family members take off the clothes of the dead and move the body into a fetal position, which I think is so beautiful because then we're leaving the world the same way in which we enter it. But Mm -hmm. at dawn, this lucky day, the body is sent to the site among the mountains and then smoke is burned to attract condors. Um, There's chants and a procession and the practice of these burials is really um, closely related to philosophy of Tibetan Buddhism. But They believe that the vultures come and eat the body and then it means that the dead has no sin and that the soul has gone peacefully to paradise. So then Mm -hmm. the condors on the mountains are the holy birds and they eat the human body without attacking any small animals nearby. And any remains left must be collected and burnt um, because the remains would tie the spirits back to this life. As I mentioned earlier, I think of plants and the earth as its own kind of memory and ancestry as well. There's this beautiful book I have here called Iwagara, The Kinship of Plants and People, American Indian Ethnobotanical Traditions and Science by Enrique Salman. In the introduction, he speaks about how he was raised to experience and treat all plants as a part of his family, and he explains the terms of Iwagara, Um, quote, Iwagara channels the idea that all life, spiritual and physical, is interconnected in a continual cycle and expresses the belief that life shares the same breath. We are all related to and play a role in the complexity of life, and in a worldview based on Iwagara, humans are no more important to the natural world than any other form of life. Knowing that I am related to everything around me and share breath with all living things helps me to focus on my responsibility to honor all forms of life. I carefully consider all living and non-living things when making choices or weighing actions I might take. In short, I see myself as one of the many stewards of the land and natural world. I share breath with it, so I endeavor to minister to it with appropriate ritual thought and ceremony. And Robin Wall Kimmerer, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, writes that the land knows you even when you are lost. And to me, you know, what is more archetypally familial than that? To be known and seen even when you may not see yourself. And she also writes, this is really why I made my daughters learn to garden. So they would always have a mother to love them long after I am gone. Which to me is a reminder that the natural world is just the world we are here and it is our responsibility to treat it as family and so when i think of my ancestor magic practice so much of it is just remembering and reconnecting what i've been disconnected from to share that one breath so that i don't forget gardening with my grandma lucy or standing in the kitchen with my grandma joan while she cooked it's a great web of plants food futures and pasts
0: so beautiful I know that we've talked about braiding sweetgrass before, but I feel like every time I pick it up or hear someone mention a passage, I hear something new. Mm-hmm. And also, yes, to gardening. It's such a spiritual practice. And I mean, I feel so honored to have the opportunity to work with the soil and plants and trees and just be a be an active
1: part of that web. Absolutely. And, you know, when I think about home and ancestry, I think of my hometown in Michigan, and I think about oak trees. And so I know that I can return to oak anywhere in the world and be reminded of my roots and where I come from and have that strength to move forward. And even beyond sitting with a physical oak, the spirit of oak or any plant ally really is available to be called upon and to help. Plants really want to help us. I think they're incredibly kind and forgiving. And you know, even though our human families may not always be so generous, it's
0: so true. They are
1: so forgiving and also very, very patient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. And I also think it's really important um, for us to talk about the shadow side of ancestry. I was reading the anti-racism daily newsletter this week, which is a newsletter created by Nicole Cardoza. Um, I'll link it in the show notes as usual. For anyone looking to receive this in your inbox, um, it's got a ton of great information, um, but this particular piece from this week is titled Unpack Genetic Ancestry Testing, and it was written by editor Andrew Lee, but in it, he discusses the United States and our obsession with ancestry and genetic testing. So he writes that, quote, There are reasons why, when it comes to researching ancestry, white people from privileged backgrounds have a distinct advantage. Forced relocation, immigration, and premature death all blot out the histories of families of color, and racial disparities even infect the supposed objectivity of genetic analysis. Companies like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe determine your background by comparing your DNA to the DNA in a reference panel of people of different ethnicities. Most of the DNA in that data set is from European descended people— meaning results are significantly more detailed for white people. We should be proud that we and our ancestors survived a system that tried to erase our existence, and those who can trace back their family histories should reflect on what those histories mean. Their ancestors were the beneficiaries of a system that erased the existence of so many others, and end quote. I've definitely built my family tree and used 23andMe to seek out an understanding of where I came from, to find folklore, recipes, plants, and magic. But as a white woman and as a witch, it's been important in my ancestry magic to understand the violence and oppression that my ancestors have perpetuated and now to pay reparations and to come to different and new understandings. And all of this is to say that it's just something that I'm still working on and attempting to understand, you know, the many layers of colonization and conditioning and history.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's
1: really important work to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of this to say is that working with direct ancestors uh, is also a beautiful practice if that resonates with you. You know, I definitely have the privilege of having a loose outline and also having relationships with my family and so because of this I do and have created a channeled writing practice and sometimes I through this I get to hear from my departed grandparents who feel just as familiar as they ever did um, you know I received a choral kind of message from my Polish ancestors a few weeks ago, which was beautiful and song like and supportive. I think that building an ancestor altar either to specific ancestors with photographs, notes, and their favorite foods, or to ancestry at large uh, with offerings can be like a beautiful way to connect to that space and You know, I just can't believe how many people needed to meet each other and have sex for us to exist. Like, that absolutely blows my mind. Same. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think recipes are also a beautiful way to build webs of ancestry, love, and support. And, you know, you can also start now. Like, you can be Mm -hmm. the good ancestor. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. can handwrite a few of your favorite recipes give them to friends cousins nieces nephews I have a box of recipes that my aunt's cousins mom and grandmothers filled up because for a few Christmases a couple years ago everyone just brought two recipes and printed out enough for everyone to take home but um you know and much like you said earlier Kristen books are a wonderful way to build ancestry I've always felt at home in a library and I think, you know, one of the most simple ways to connect with ancestors is through quiet meditation, blessings, lighting a candle and prayer. Mm -hmm. Kristen, in what ways do you connect with ancestry in your own practice? Well, I love everything that you mentioned, you know, building an ancestor altar. Um,
0: And what I'm going to say might sound rather mundane, (laughs) but You know, I wear my grandmother's jewelry every day. Mm. I garden with my grandfather's gardening tools. I call to them. I summon them in dreams. Um, Like you, I write to them. And maybe most importantly, I listen. Mm. Like I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I do not come from a line of witches as far as I know, but there are plenty of artists and healers and gardeners that came before me, which feel like pieces of a puzzle that I can shift and move and work with in my craft, but in a way that feels organic, Mm. like a form of everyday magic instead of once a year trying to summon them at Samhain or something, Mm -hmm. which I still do. But since I see ancestors as guides, I want to feed them and interact with them regularly. And so for me, these small acts of devotion seem to do the trick and while not my direct ancestors i live in a very old house that my husband's mother lived in and her aunts and her grandmother so that feels really special and i think can also be an opportunity to expand our understanding of ancestors in the non-traditional sense i briefly met one of the aunts in a dream which i didn't realize until i saw an old photograph of her about a year later but that really validated, at least for me, that the dead are not gone. We may not always be able to see or perceive them, but if we set up a little altar for them, you know, light a candle on their birthday, put their picture in a pretty frame, offer them a glass of wine, a heartfelt letter, I don't know, I think magic is bound to follow.
1: You so much Kristen, and thank you so much listeners for joining us today on magic and alchemy a podcast from tamed wild again we're at kate baloo and Kristen Lizenby. you can find us online at k8 baloo and at east and alchemy send us all of your questions comments or just say hello via email at podcast at You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com.
0: Tune into next
1: week's episode where we talk
0: moon magic part two. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.